Well, good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. I'm glad that you could join us for this really special church service. Uh, this only happens about once every seven years that we're actually able to have Christmas on a Sunday morning. So I'm very thankful for this opportunity, for the means to be able to do this. Not every church uh, in New England has the opportunity to just roll into a church, turn on the lights, and do church. So uh, we're really glad that you are here with us this morning. Um, this seems like a very peculiar Christmas text, uh, for sure. Uh, Nehemiah 13 really honestly reads as one of the most anticlimactic texts in the entire Bible. Uh, what you have is 12 chapters preceding this of just growing anticipation, um, a new hope of something incredible that God is finally fulfilling in his people, a promise that was made uh, that God would make for himself a nation, and not just a nation of normal people, but a nation of priests who are holy, who are pure, and that honestly seemed to be finally happening as you read through the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah. You've got this miraculous rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. You've got a powerful display of community and God's people coming together. It's a true underdog story. It's filled with drama and treachery, but even more instances of grand victories and triumphs. I mean, the whole second half of the book reads almost like a redemptive fairy tale. It's almost too good to be true, and it ends with a literal victory lap around the city for everything that God has done. It keeps getting better and better. God's people are reading God's word. They're submitting to God's rule and reign. They're, they're taking holiness seriously. They're repenting of sin. They're praying with one another. They're studying the Bible. They're celebrating. They're covenanting together as a community. Like, there's a real sense of this is it. This is what God promised Abraham. This is the moment where Israel would finally rise triumphantly. They would bless all of the nations. The final fulfillment of everything creation had longed and hoped for ever since sin first entered into the world. And then chapter 13 happens. And we're left here with a series of punches to our guts and scratching our heads and wondering what in the world happened. What happened? Perhaps the most important question of all that we should be asking is, where is God? Perhaps that the problem with mankind and our sinfulness is so big that maybe God can't fix it. Like up until this point, this was the best attempt by God's people and God himself to right the broken ship. It was the most promising swing of the bat, if you want to use a baseball analogy. But then Israel, they, they just completely strike out they take their bat and they just throw it into the stands and then they just abandon the baseball diamond altogether. That's what happens in chapter 13. In many ways, Nehemiah is the perfect Christmas text. And I think you'll understand why as we dig in a little bit deeper. So what exactly happens here in chapter 13? Let's walk through it together. So please, if you haven't already, open up your Bibles. I want you to see this for yourself. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. We see four major scenes or movements in the final chapter. Uh, of these verses, and, and, and then you see a final conclusion from Nehemiah himself. So first, let me just set the scene. Uh, the, the events that we're reading this morning do not happen immediately after chapter 12. Some time has passed. We're not exactly sure how much time has passed, but we do get some clues that it is a considerable amount of time. There's enough time for children to forget a language. More on that in a little bit. But Nehemiah leads as the governor of Jerusalem for at least 12 years, and then he returns back home to Persia to report to the king who originally signed off on this rebuilding project. Remember, all the way back, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, uh, and, and it was, he was shown miraculous favor to be able to come and to rebuild the walls inside Jerusalem. 
So then Nehemiah goes back to Persia after a period of time. He reports everything to the king, and then he comes back to Jerusalem to check in on his people. Verses 4 to the end of the chapter is Nehemiah recounting what he found when he returned. So the first thing he finds is described in verses 4 through 9. You see that Tobiah, uh, and we should all remember that name, Tobiah. Tobiah was uh, viciously opposed to Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls. He taunted and berated the people of Israel who, who began the building. Uh, this is back in chapter 4, uh, alongside Sanballat, who's another name that's mentioned later on in this chapter. And then in chapter 6, Tobiah is the one who conspires against Nehemiah. He tries to kidnap him. He tries to intimidate him. He tries to slander him. He undermines him, essentially throwing every nasty play in the book at Nehemiah to try to stop him from rebuilding the wall. So that Tobiah, that guy who is pretty much the nemesis of this book, Nehemiah returns to find that he has a room, a large chamber inside the temple. Tobiah has moved into the temple, and he's made a room where the offerings and sacrifices to God were stored. Now, how do we get here? We know that back in chapter 6, at the end there, where Nehemiah was aware, he, he, he communicated this, he was aware that Tobiah had spies and sympathizers within Jerusalem. They were leaking information to Tobiah, and Tobiah was feeding Nehemiah misinformation But over time, the level of infiltration into Israel has grown. And at this point, it's condoned by the high priest himself. And what has come about is incredibly dangerous for the people of God. It's one thing to have a wolf who is intimidating the sheep from outside of the gates. It's another to give that wolf a bed next to the shepherd, which is what's happened. The enemy of God has been allowed, perhaps even invited, into making making his bed inside God's house. What does Nehemiah think about this? You see this, his reaction in the second part of chapter 7 says, I then discovered the evil that Eliashib, that's the high priest, had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So this is quite a homecoming for Nehemiah. Can you just imagine the scene for a minute? Tobiah's coming back from brunch with his buddies, and he just sees his wardrobe smashed into pieces on the ground as his nightstand goes flying through the air out the doors of the temple. Now, notice here that there's no protest. Tobiah likely has fled at this point. He must have known that it was a matter of time before Nehemiah found out. I can't imagine Tobiah is surprised at this point. Now, we need to be fair to Nehemiah. Uh, Tobiah is trespassing in the house of the Lord. Okay, we've already talked about how entering into certain parts of the temple was forbidden by God. This is actually one of their treacherous plots back in chapter 6, to get Nehemiah to go into these forbidden areas so that he would disqualify himself and render judgment on himself and then be prevented from continuing the project. And now that the tables have turned, Tobiah is actually guilty of doing what he was trying to coax Nehemiah into doing. Nehemiah, in turn, is actually showing grace and mercy by just throwing his furniture out, since Tobiah likely could have stood trial to be stoned to death for violating God's commands and going into the temple. Now we're going to see Nehemiah responding very dramatically and very boldly to Israel's sin in chapter 13. 
And there are a few things that we need to keep in mind before we go any further. Things we need to remember about the whole book of Nehemiah as we read these accounts. So number one, we know that Nehemiah is an even-keeled man who is logical and methodical. That's what you see as you read the book of Nehemiah. He's thoughtful. You see this from the very beginning. He's definitely a man of action, but always a man of tempered and measured action. His behavior in chapter 13 is not an exception to this fact, so keep that in mind. Number two, Nehemiah is rested. He's rested. He's been away living in relative luxury as the cupbearer of Persia. When he was in Jerusalem, life was not great for him. But he gets to go home, he's rested, Nehemiah's not being caught in a moment of physical or emotional exhaustion that we know of. This is not like day 120 on the job site for him. His responses are not to be chalked up to fatigue or shortness of temper. Number three, Nehemiah is consistent. Nehemiah is consistent. Throughout the whole book of Nehemiah, his tune is the same. Nehemiah is not a moody teenager here. He's not a belligerent parent who just flies off the handle seemingly randomly. Nehemiah's frustration here is nothing new for his contemporaries. No one is saying, hey, where's the old Nehemiah? We want to talk with him. This is old Nehemiah. And number four, Nehemiah has proven his love for both God and for God's people over and over and over again. The verbiage in verse 14, I'm going to jump down a little bit. He says, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds. It's interesting wording there. Another way to phrase that, another way to uh, translate that is my acts of loyal love, the hesed love. Do not wipe away my good deeds, my acts of loyal love that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. One of the most surprising things to me in all the book of Nehemiah, and I'm serious, like the most unbelievable and astonishing thing to me, it's not the miraculous provisioning that they receive for the wall project. It's not that they finish the walls. It's not that they overcome a lot of adversity. It's not even that they repent as a community or that they then collapse as a community. The most surprising thing to me as I read Nehemiah is that every single time Nehemiah stands up and he calls people out, It's always met the same exact way. They say, you're right, Nehemiah. What should we do? That's crazy. There's never a word of protest. There's never a word of defense or justification for their actions. Just a nation that is full of people with soft enough hearts who are willing to hear and receive correction. That's a miracle in the book of Nehemiah. Like, consider this for a moment. Imagine the level of humility that full-grown human adults would have to have, imagine the level of trust that they would have to have to always respond like this. Imagine the level of character that Nehemiah would have to have to lead in this way. The reason why Nehemiah is responded to so well as a leader, um, it it astounds me, but it's also a testimony to the type of person Nehemiah has proven himself to be and the favor that God has given to him in the eyes and and the hearts of the people that he is leading. Nehemiah is not a tyrannical, toxic, domineering leader. If you jumped into Nehemiah chapter 13, and that's all you read of the whole book of Nehemiah, you might get this impression. But remember Nehemiah. That's his appeal to God. Remember, remember 
what he has sacrificed for his people, what he has sacrificed for God. And remember that his heart is one, as, as we observe in his responses in, in chapter 13, is one of love for his people and for God. So we're not seeing a really bad mood swing of his. He's not hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You know that acronym? It's a place where our likeliness to be unreasonable is heightened if we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Like, that's not Nehemiah. He's not unreasonable here. Nehemiah is not abusive. He is not toxic. He is genuinely grieved out of love and doing what the Lord has put on his heart. He corrects the sinful behavior of his people. And that's what he does here. He cleanses the temple of Tobiah's stuff, and he restores it to its rightful, holy purposes. Look then what he finds in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 10. Verse 10 says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So the second thing that Nehemiah finds is that the temple has been neglected. So remember the text we looked at, the end of chapter 12. There's a beautiful celebration they had uh, with the dedication of the completed walls. There's this really sweet moment where it says that all Israel rejoiced over the Levites and the priests. And they take time to appreciate them and honor them, and they bless those who work to serve the temple. That was a sweet chapter. Well, they ended up forgetting about them. They stopped distributing the tithes to them. It gets so bad, it says in verse 10, that, that they had each fled to his field. So that's like having a staff and a pastor appreciation day. And you're blessing and honoring the pastor and the staff. You're saying, thank you guys so much for your hard work. We're going to give you a raise. And then everyone neglects to tithe. And then we stop getting our paychecks. And then one Sunday you come to church and the staff and I are gone because we're working a shift at Starbucks in order to pay our rent and buy our groceries. It's a bad look. That's what's happened. And Nehemiah confronts the people responsible. He calls out the officials and he asks them, very point blank, why is the house of God forsaken? The verbiage is significant because it was the very promise that the officials and the leaders made together as a covenant in chapter 10. So Nehemiah chapter 10, if you flip back a few pages, verse 39, it says, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain and wine and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, and as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. That's a quote. So Nehemiah is asking, what happened, gentlemen? He's looking at the leaders. Can someone please tell me why we neglected the house of the Lord? In all of 13, again, there is not a single response from anyone. Not that's been recorded. And I think it's because they know. Nehemiah confronts them. He corrects the problem. He resets those fractures again. This is not the first time he's had to do this. And then in verses 15 through 18, Nehemiah sees that the people are working the wine press. They're working really hard. They're, they're bringing in their crops. They're busy trading. So what's the problem? 
Well, the problem is, is it's the Sabbath, and God's people are not supposed to be doing any work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, and we've talked about this because it's not the first time it's come up in the book of Nehemiah. The Sabbath is a day of rest for God's people. It's a time to rejuvenate and to delight in God and to trust God for their needs. It is not an extra day to get work done or to catch up on things you need to catch up on. That is a blatant disregard and a disrespect of God himself. And yes, we see that there are other people who lived among the Jews who didn't keep the Sabbath, but they were not God's people. They were not held to the same standard. Those who were God's people were called to rest on the Sabbath, to trust God, to obey his word for for their good, but also in worship and submission to their good and their faithful God. But they didn't. They compromised. Nehemiah is rightfully not pleased. You see in verse 17 there, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah points out the obvious here. This is not a new sin. He's saying, Israel, we've been down this road. You can hear the desperation and the exasperation in his voice. Didn't our fathers do the same thing? And didn't it destroy us? It led to the destruction of the city, which we've just finished rebuilding out of the rubble. Guys, we're doing it all over again. Can't you see? Nehemiah tries to help his people by closing the gates on the Sabbath, He sets up some guards so that foreigners, those who are non-Jews, wouldn't be able to set up their shops in the city and tempt the Israelites to do work and to trade on the Sabbath. But some of them didn't get the message. They were waiting outside of the walls, perhaps until Nehemiah, this Nehemiah guy, would just go away and then they can go back to business as usual. It's kind of like the image of like a lion that's kind of prowling around at the gates. They're waiting for their prey to let down their guard. Nehemiah is not afraid of lions. Look at verse 20. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Nehemiah continues to lead. He's calling people out. He's calling people up. He corrects their sinful behavior. He puts the fear of God in people, which we see in the Bible, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And we'll see in a minute that it's not an empty threat that he's making. Nehemiah's bite is just as strong as his bark. And unfortunately, chapter 13 just keeps going. You want to like stop, but it doesn't. Now, we've talked about Israel's habitual generational sin and disobedience in the area of intermarriage before. So I encourage you to listen to those if you want a deeper treatment on why God uh, commands them to not marry foreigners and, 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 and interact with them on a worship level. But we've seen over and over again that this is an area of continual compromise for God's people. Marrying those who do not know God, who do not love God, who do not yield to God. And what happens is that it brings disaster upon Israel over and over and over again. 
In chapter 10, you go back a, a few chapters, they reaffirm their commitment to, themsel- uh, to, to keep themselves pure and uncompromised in this way. And then the first few verses of chapter 13, we talked about this last week actually, they read God's law concerning intermarriage again. They're convicted by it. They hear God's heart in it, and then they repent of it. And then just 20 verses later, right here, verse 23, in those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. When we sin, when we compromise, that sin always grows. It spreads like a disease, taking more and more of our hearts and invading into our lives. Earlier, Israel repents of including these foreigners in worship with them. And remember, this is not God being racist to include people, or I'm sorry, in in excluding people. This is a practical guarding of God's people and reserving the space of worship specifically for God's people. But what what began with seemingly a minor compromise of letting these foreigners who don't love God into the space of worship has grown. And it's grown into actually marrying them and merging families together with these people who don't know and don't love God. The heartbreaking thing in all this is you see that portion where the the children forget the language. The the problem with that is not because God just loves a single language. That's the language that they'd be able to worship God in. That's the language that they'd be able to hear the word of God being taught to them. That's the language they would use to worship God and respond to God, and they've forgotten the language. That was the heartbreaking thing that happens here. Israel is falling apart at the seams. They're falling apart religiously. They're falling apart spiritually. They're falling apart economically, socially. And we're seeing what happens when God's holy city isn't holy. It implodes in on itself, as it historically has. And Nehemiah's heart is broken. His frustration is at 100. His patience is nearly gone. Look at verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Nehemiah appeals to the wisest most successful Israelite in history to point out that compromise in this area can lead anyone astray. This is not an indictment on women, so please don't hear that. Nehemiah is pointing out the reality that when you're in an intimate relationship with someone who doesn't know, who doesn't obey God, it does not go well. Not even for the wisest, most powerful, and wealthiest king who has ever lived. Solomon's lust for women led inevitably to further compromise and sin. He was not immune to it. He was not bigger or better than it. And he suffered emotionally and spiritually for it, for his lack of repentance in this specific area. Israel's greatest flaw 
is their constant diminishing of the severity of sin and the constant growth of their pride. They have these moments of sobriety. Like, they're made aware of their sin, but always over time, their grip loosens and laxes on sin and their belief that they know what's best, that they don't actually need need God as much as they do, that grows. And this combination is a deadly combination. It proves catastrophic for the nation repeatedly. It's what we see in the garden originally, that question of, did God really tell you to not eat of that tree? Like, that, that's the diminishing of the, the, the severity of disobeying God's word. And then the growth of their pride and thinking that they, this is Adam and Eve, that they knew what was best as they ate of that fruit. It's what we're seeing here at the end of Nehemiah. They're diminishing the severity of their sin, a growing sense of pride in them as well. And it's what we, as God's people, need to be on guard against as well here today. It would be incredibly naive of us to think that we're any different than our forefathers. Now, one thing to take away from all of this, which was a takeaway from the very first sermon of this series, as we saw Nehemiah weep over the sins of his people, is that the sins of your brothers and sisters should affect you. They should affect you. It should cause you to feel and bubble inside. If indeed we love one another, when we see each other's sin, it ought to stir us inside in some tangible way. Now, I'm not saying that we should throw furniture or rip out hair or beat people. It is safer to treat this passage as descriptive as opposed to prescriptive. So descriptive of events that happened and not necessarily prescriptive on how exactly we should act. But at the very least... When we see sin in our family, in our community, in the ones that we love, we need to be angry about it. We need to feel something about it. When your family is walking in darkness, when the seriousness of sin is just lost on them, when when they won't listen to God, and when they continue to believe that the way that they're walking is the right way, like the most unlovable thing that you can do is to be passive, or worse, communicate that you condone their sinfulness. Now, culture would disagree with me. Culture will say that you need to be tolerant if you love someone, to accept them as they are. I'm not saying that we ought to be a jerk, but all of Israel was living in mutual tolerance. Nobody is saying anything. Everyone was compromised. And what likely began as small areas of compromise led Israel to break every aspect of their covenant with God and with one another. It led to their temple being abandoned and forsaken. It led to neglecting God and his commands to a point where their children weren't able to interact with the living God. And it was leading, once again, to their inevitable cyclical destruction, just like it always had. The disappointment of chapter 13 cannot be overstated. In fact, if you're reading along as God's people and you don't know what's going to happen later, it's a moment of absolute despair and hopelessness. It's a bottoming out, again, in their relationship between God and his people. There's a moment in one of the movies that I really enjoy, episode three of Star Wars, Revenge of the Sith, that I think captures the emotions of this moment. Uh, In episodes one and two, if you've never seen these movies before, maybe you're here, there's this prophecy that's given that a young man would be born and that he would bring restoration to the whole galaxy 
that he would be the embodiment of the light side of the force, and that he would bring peace to everyone. Now, what happens instead is that this young man, Anakin Skywalker, becomes corrupted. And there's a series of compromises, and you see them as you're watching those movies, that leads him to become the embodiment of evil. And there's a scene where his, his friend and his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, looks at him, and he is distraught. He is confused. He's completely heartbroken. And he says, you were the chosen one, Anakin. Like, you were supposed to destroy the dark side, not join it. It's an incredibly dark and sad moment in the film. And if, if you don't know what, what's going to happen next, where literally episode four is called A New Hope, right? But if you don't know that yet, then you would be hopeless, that's exactly how the readers of Nehemiah would feel. And that's how we should feel in this moment. Israel was supposed to be. They were supposed to bring hope and peace and joy and love to all the nations. They were supposed to fix the problem of sin, not be consumed in it themselves. They were the promised ones, the chosen ones. So what is happening Obi-Wan Kenobi lives in this confused reality. He, he, he has a complete existential crisis. This seasoned war general, he's had countless victories in battle. He becomes a weak old hermit living in a desert, questioning everything he's ever believed, everything he's hoped for, everything he's ever fought for. That's what happens. Now, why is this a perfect Christmas morning text? Because there is a new hope. <laughs> the story of God does not end in chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a blatant reminder that no matter what kind of all-star team of sinful humans you put together, they will always fail. No matter how promising they look, no matter how good of a run they have, no matter how great everything looks on the outside, we as humans are powerless to fix the effects of sin and brokenness in the world. But where Israel failed to live holy, perfect relationship with God, where they failed to bring joy and love and hope and peace to the nations, there would be one who would not fail. The story of Nehemiah is a backwards advent. It's a growing anticipation that gets completely snuffed out. Look at how it ends, verse 30 and 31. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided the food for the offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. It is a shrug of the shoulders. And, and here's the reality. All that Nehemiah can do is to maintain. He cannot truly fix or heal anything or bring any true reconciliation and redemption to his people. And he knows this. So he helps his people repent. He sets people back up to do their work. He himself makes sure that the temple is stocked and essentially pays the tithes and the offerings to keep things running. But there is no hope that this cycle won't, won't just continue. And Nehemiah has realized this. And, and that's because sin isn't a problem with behavior. It is a problem with their hearts. And so Nehemiah signs off this epic letter, his life's calling, everything he's done by saying effectively, God, remember me. Remember that I tried. Literally, for goodness sake, remember what happened here. And that's the end. That's the end of the book. I'm sure guys, people reading it for the first time would be like, hey, is there like a page missing or something? Like there's got to be a little bit, something more. No, that's it. That's the end of the book. It's a very strange way to end the book. But what of this 
chosen one that would be born from God's people would be a question that they're asking. What of this promised solution of the, 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 the problem of sin? What about this covenant that was made with Abraham? What about the prophecies of the Christ, the Messiah, the, 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 who would be coming as the son of David? Like, what about all of that, God? Well, how do the Gospels open up? Do you remember Matthew chapter 1? Open up there with me. It's the first book of the New Testament. I don't know what page it's on, but maybe someone can look real quick. First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. What page is it on? 807. 807. Thank you, Kirill. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that is, the Messiah, the son of who? Son of David, the son of Abraham. The gospel opens up here by saying, here he is. Here is the chosen one, the promised Messiah, the Christ. Jesus in the Gospels is the fulfillment of everything in the book of Nehemiah. Jesus is the hopeful conclusion to the story that, thank God, does not end in chapter 13. So ride this ride with me. Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah, who not only weeps over the sins of his people, but he leaves the comfort of heaven to come to earth and then identifies with his people in their mess. Philippians 2, verses 5 and 7. Jesus doesn't just sit and pray for a few months like Nehemiah does in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, but he is in constant intercessory prayer for all of us to the Father. Hebrews 7:25. Jesus doesn't just unite us in a building project. He makes us one body with one spirit, with one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Jesus doesn't just put up with some heckling and some jeering like Nehemiah does. He endures the cross. He despises the shame of it while enduring mockery and abuse to the point of death, Hebrews 12, 2. When Nehemiah stood between the builders and the opposition, it was a picture of Jesus who stands in the ultimate gap between us and Satan, who would sift us like sand, like wheat, if we weren't protected by Jesus, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. Jesus is the true advocate for the oppressed and the poor, who doesn't just bless with bread that molds, but he himself is the bread of life, and he gives it to them, and it sustains them forever, John six fifty-one. Jesus is even more generous than Nehemiah, giving an inheritance of not gold and silver, but an imperishable reward of eternal life. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Jesus is the true king who never compromises, but reigns and rules perfectly, justly, righteously, forever and ever. Jesus doesn't just read God's word for God's people. Jesus is God's word who dwells with his people. Jesus is the true and better Sabbath who is not just a day of of rest during the week, but who is our permanent and eternal rest. We don't just confess our sin to Jesus. He forgives us of it and then cleanses us from our sin. Jesus gives access to people of all nations to himself through faith, not by works. Jesus is the true wall. He is the wall that the whole book is about, who ultimately guards and protects his people physically and spiritually forever, and that wall will never crumble. Jesus doesn't just accept sacrifices at the temple. He himself is the perfect sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Jesus will never forsake his people, even when his people forsake the temple and God. Jesus never breaks covenant with us even when we break it over and over again. Jesus will never beat us up. 
He will never pull out our hair. He will have perfect patience and mercy on us forever. Jesus will keep us perfectly clean and purified forever. Jesus will remember us, not for the good that we've done, but for the good that he has done for us. Merry Christmas, Mercy House. You're going to open lots of presents today. Maybe you already have. Jesus truly is the greatest gift that humanity has been waiting for forever. He's what Nehemiah was waiting for as he signed off this letter. He's what God's people were longing for when they kept seeing stories of failure and failure and failure and failure. And today, we get to celebrate him. We get to enjoy him as the author and the perfecter of our faith, as the delight of our hearts and the ultimate source of hope, peace, love, and joy that will bless all the nations. I want to close with just one passage of scripture to close out our entire semester on Nehemiah. It is the description of a present that God will give to us at the end of time, in the beginning of eternity. We read about it in Revelation. We've read a lot about bricks and mortar that make up Jerusalem and its walls in this book of Nehemiah, but our final gift will be a new and a better Jerusalem. Listen to the description and and get a little excited about it. This is in Revelation 21, verses 10 through 27. And he carried carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, And at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. That's 14,000 miles. Its length and width and height are equal, a 14,000 square cube that is the city. Its length and width are equal. He also measured its wall, okay? It is 144 cubits. That's 216 feet compared to the wall that they're rebuilding, which is 40 feet. So 216 feet tall by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. That's a strange aside, but the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, this is the important part. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nehemiah's walls that he's building will inevitably crumble. Its gates will collapse. The temple would be ransacked. The people are going to be displaced. But it did do something great, which is point forward to something that we all get to see fully realized in the New Jerusalem. So, brothers and sisters, as as we spend our day enjoying Christ, enjoying his creation, enjoying his blessings, enjoying fellowship that we have with one another, remember that there is one more present waiting for us to unwrap one day. And on that day, we will behold our final resting place. It will be the completed city of God's people. And despite, despite the harshness of life under the sun today, there will come a day where we will all live happily ever after. On the, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Communion is a meal that we share each week to remind us of Jesus' death, but also his promise to bring us to our eternal home. So Mercy House, rest in him today. Rest in his work. Rest in his sacrifice, his love, his hope, his joy, and his peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Nehemiah and his faithfulness to you and to your people. God, we thank you that your story did not end at the end of the book of Nehemiah. God, we thank you that the gospels show us a conclusion that is beautiful, that fulfills everything that Nehemiah was pointing to. You make up for every failure in the book of Nehemiah. You are the true and better Nehemiah who is our ultimate leader and protector, and not just for a little bit, not just for a short season, but forever. God, we thank you so much that we get to celebrate you on this day. God, we thank you that you are a God who on his birthday gives us gifts. Lord, help us to enjoy and appreciate the gifts that you have given us that you have paid dearly for. God, help us to be able to share this good news with others, Lord. God, I thank you for each person here, that they made the decision to come and worship you on Christmas Day, as inconvenient as that might be, throwing off normal plans and rituals. God, thank you that they are here this morning. I pray that you'd bless them for that, God. I pray, Lord, now as we respond in worship, Lord, that we would be able to experience with our hearts the joy and the peace um, and and the love and the hope that comes with the gospel, Lord. Lord, we love you so much, and we want to say happy birthday, and we pray, Lord, that you would just receive all the glory and praise today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.